ghosts, specters, whatever you want to call them, they've been around for thousands of years. Apparently she died from a tooth infection in one of the upstairs rooms in the house. As in the locations they haunt. History of a Haunting podcast tells you all about these famous, infamous, and almost famous locations. And why they became terrifying places to visit. Grab a glass of wine and settle in with your hosts, Archie. I mean, that was definitely the wrong thing to do. And Carrie. Nobody asked for it, Carrie. Nobody fucking asked for it. But hey, my podcast, and I'll say what I fucking want. (laughs) Two people just winging it in life and this podcast. So enjoy this week's episode of History of a Haunting. Welcome to History of a Haunting. I'm Carrie. I'm Archie. And I'm Laura. Laura's going to take this one away for us. We don't have any EVPs. We don't have any, um, all the Patreons. Once again, Patreons of the week. We love you. And here's your standing ovation. Okay, yay, thanks. Um (laughs) (laughs) today we are going to um this episode is actually dedicated to two people um it is going to be dedicated to one of our original guest hosts jennifer de simon our lovely friend who uh, handles all of our media inquiries and all of those garbage emails that we get when (laughs) people are like hey do you want to join this that or the other thing and i'm like here please talk to our media director um that's Jennifer. She also has the haunted house in Pittsburgh that everyone's out always asking what's going on. Update, so far, nothing has been happening. Uh, so this episode is dedicated to her for a very special reason. This episode, we are doing Haunted Objects 2. And she was our first guest host on the original Haunted Objects, which, Arch, was that episode five, I think? Oh. I think I it was episode point. five. Yeah. So That's an oldie. An oldie but a goodie, yeah. In that episode, we covered Robert the Doll, the Divic Box, and Annabelle. We've got three new haunted objects to bring to you this week, guys. So uh, Haunted Objects 2 is dedicated to Jen DeSimon. We love you very much. The second person this is dedicated to is Jason Momoa. And the reason that is is because (laughs) I love him very much. And uh, my poor mother was watching Aquaman, and she then fell in love with him. I don't know why it did. She hasn't fallen in love with him before now, but I made her shut it off so we could record. So um, this episode is dedicated to Jason Momoa because he's the most beautiful human being in the history of humanity. And she just heard that. Now she's giggling. Um, Anyway, (laughs) so we rolled the dice with a very ferocious game of not it and Laura lost. So we're going to do Laura's story first. (laughs) By the way, they cheated, but go on. (laughs) They're all ready. And I'm like, what's happening? (laughs) Here we go. Not it. Um, So we're each going to bring to you the history and the hauntings or the curses of various haunted objects. And Laura, take it away with yours. Nice. So my haunted object is a painting called The Hands Resist Him. Um, have you guys ever heard of this? Never heard of it until we chose it. And it the painting itself is horrifying. And we'll put it up on all our social media. I hate it entirely, but I don't know the story. Oh, oh God. I, I actually, the same. I hadn't heard about it until we started looking for things to do. Uh-huh. And completely horrifying. 
I, I can't wait to hear what you're going to tell us. Yeah, the picture is super creepy. All right, so I got my information from Wikipedia and somethingwicked.com. Um, so this painting was created by artist Bill Stoneham in 1972, and it depicts a young boy and a female doll standing in front of a glass panel door against which many hands are pressed. So wait a minute, I have a question. It already sounds terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Is the little girl supposed to be a doll or did he just paint her in a really shitty way? No, she's supposed to be a doll. Yeah, okay. Yeah, which makes it worse. (laughs) Worse. (laughs) It's terrible. (laughs) And that's Laura's story, everybody. (laughs) It's fucking awful. Don't look at it. No questions Um, asked. (laughs) Right, and I'm done. All right, so according to the artist Stoneham, the boy is based on a photograph of himself at age five. And the doorway is a representation of the, the dividing line between the waking world and the world of fantasy and impossibilities. The doll is a guide that will escort the boy through it. And the titular hands represent alternative lives or possibilities. It's not getting better. It isn't getting any, <laughs> no, any fucking it. better. <laughs> it doesn't. All right. So the painting was first displayed at the Fine Garden Gallery in Beverly Hills, California during the early 1970s. So during the show, the painting was purchased by actor John Marley, who is known for his role as Jack Waltz in The Godfather. However, before the painting was sold, it was reviewed by an art critic from the LA Times, who then died within the year, and the owner of the art gallery also reportedly died within a year. Stoneham speculated that this may have been the beginning of some sort of curse. Did they die because they said how ugly and horrible the whole idea and painting (laughs) was? I think that this is just kind of like feeds into the mythology of, you know, why this is such a curse. I mean, it's got to be cursed. He had to have been cursed when he painted it. And therefore. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So then it's like kind of like anybody who had contact with it started to die. So then John Marley, the guy that bought it, he also died in 1984 after open heart surgery, but reportedly sold the painting before his death. It's unknown who the painting went to next, but it eventually turned up when an elderly California couple reportedly found it abandoned behind an old brewery turned art space and took it home. They, the couple, they have to be elderly. Oh, this is not going to end great. <laughs> <laughs> right? So the couple reported they hung the painting in their four-year-old daughter's room. And that had only been in the family's house for a few days when she started to complain about it and told them how the children in the painting would fight and how the girl would threaten the boy with the object, object she was holding in her hand. So they hated their granddaughter. Pretty much. <laughs> it sounded like they did it on purpose, but I mean, you know, who knows? Okay, all right. <laughs> like, have you been bad? We're going to put the painting back. We'll put the painting back. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I might need one of these paintings. Um, all right, later. <laughs> uh, later, their daughter uh, told them the figures would leave the painting as ghosts and continue their fighting. So her parents decided to persuade their daughter that the painting was just a painting and set up a motion-activated camera to watch the painting to prove it to her. They claimed to have left the camera pointing at the painting for three days and nights before they went to view any of the footage it may have captured. And to the shock of the family, they found that the camera had recorded several pieces of footage. What? Yeah. I couldn't find it. I looked for it. They so. have the. There are some of the photos that it supposedly took, like online. You can find them. Um, I was looking for the video. Oh I wanted. God. I wanted to see that. So, I mean, immediately was like, I yeah, I didn't see video. Okay, just, Let, just, um, just, just stills yeah. from it. 
So okay. they claim that the capture captured several photos of the painting, almost taking on a life of its own. The colors changing, the objects in the doll's hands taking on a resemblance of a gun or other weapon instead of the dry cell battery and wires, which is a very odd thing to be her holding <laughs> in the first place. Um, <clears throat> like, is she building a bomb? What's happening? She was painted holding. Anyway, and the boy seemingly exited the painting under threat. Has the artist been evaluated for any severe mental disability or because why, what, why? If you see the other, he's done other paintings too and they all are. Yeah, he's, he's done follow-ups. Yeah, they're creeps too. <laughs> so um, to quote them, the object in her hand may have seemed to have changed due to different lighting conditions being present in the dark. But the family insists that something was remiss with the painting. So the family decided that they wanted to get rid of the painting, but instead of burning or destroying it in any other way, they decided to let the public decide. So in February of 2000, they anonymously placed the painting up for sale on eBay, reportedly with a description describing its elaborate backstory, implying that it was haunted and claiming that it carried some sort of curse. The the family selling it also claimed that the figures moved at night and would sometimes leave the painting and enter the room in which it was being displayed. So this is from them. Quote, when we received the painting, we thought it was really good art. A picker had found it abandoned behind an old brewery. At the time, we wondered why um, a seemingly perfectly fine painting would be discarded like that. Today, we don't. One morning, our four-and-a-half-year-old <laughs> daughter claimed that the children in the picture were fighting and coming into the room during the night. Now, I don't believe in UFOs or Elvis being alive, but my husband was alarmed. To my Wait, she, doesn't, set up. she doesn't believe in UFOs <laughs> or Elvis being alive? Apparently. Oh, I mean, that really, like, like... Oh, you mean, like, not, like... Saying that Elvis... Theory. Okay, so she doesn't believe that Elvis is still alive. Right. So she does believe that Elvis <laughs> did exist. She didn't specify. I mean, maybe oh, she thinks he was just, like... <laughs> Elvis was a fucking alien. She's like, it's just him in the velvet paintings that come alive. But anyway, (laughs) so to my amusement, he set up a motion trigger camera for the nights. After three nights, there were pictures, and the last two pictures shown are from the stakeout. After seeing the boy seemingly exit the painting under threat, we decided the painting has to go. Please judge for yourself before you do. Please read the following warning and disclaimer. So on their eBay, this is what they put warning Do not bid on this painting if you are susceptible to stress related disease or if you are faint of heart or are unfamiliar with supernatural events. By bidding on this painting, you agree to release the owners of all liability in relation to the sale or any events happening after the sale that might be contributed to this painting. This painting may or may not possess supernatural powers that could impact or change your life. However, by bidding, you agree to exclusively bid on the value of the artwork with disregard to less two photos featured in this auction and hold the owners harmless in regard to them and their impact, expressed or implied. So it kind of goes on that there was the the lawyer that had to write that up. Right. (laughs) Get that fucking phone call. But it sounds so much like the Dybbuk box because that's kind of Mm -hmm. like the eBay listing he put out for that. Yeah. Right. And so they did specify that there was no odor left behind in the room. There were no voices or the smell of gunpowder, no food prints or strange fluids on the wall. Um, They didn't, they said that they don't believe in ghosts. Um, they said that it was probably, you know, that there's some sort of explanation. It was probably a fluke of light. That um, they're saying, you know, take any of this into consideration before you bid, basically. They did um, put the photographs in there um, as evidence um, that the female doll character threatened, threatened the male character with the gun that they're saying she was holding, causing him to attempt to leave the painting. So the painting quickly earned a reputation um, on eBay. 
and at least 30,000 people viewed the page in more than a few bids. Um, some reported that they had experienced strange events just looking at the painting on their computers. Oh, me too. The e- because Did I you? immediately wanted to throw up and close my computer because <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> right, so bad. I really was. The doll's face is just the creepiest for it's real. awful, awful. But now I got to go see if she's holding a fucking battery or with wires or some shit. Yeah, it's super weird, right? So, um, where was I? Um, oh, and through the eBay auction, people were saying that, you know, that they felt ill and a few had fainted or have unpleasant experiences. Um, however, children seem to be the most affected and have vivid nightmares the night after seeing it, waking up screaming. And some reportedly claimed that the children who saw the painting ran away screaming or freaked out. Others were said to be touched by an invisible force. And one person who tried to print the image had his printer malfunction. I'm like, yeah, my printer malfunctions all the time. <laughs> Same. Same. One person reportedly claimed to hear an exorcist-type voice, along with a blast of hot air. Another person reported that he became ill while viewing the painting and had to burn white sage to cleanse his house afterwards. Which, by the way, works, and which is why we send it to all of our Patreons. <laughs> and someone else claimed to have experienced blackout slash mind control experiences. I mean, it's just sellers, a drunk night, but all right. Yeah, I'm all, I'm all saying. Um, wow, Friday, okay. <laughs> <laughs> things, these things happen. Um, however, the sellers reportedly backtracked before this auction was over and wrote, there are no ghosts in this world, no supernatural powers, this is just a painting, and most of these things have an explanation, in this case, probably a fluke-like. But a lot of people, this didn't change their mind, and numerous websites and chat rooms divided to the, devoted to the legendary haunted painting of eBay popped up. So the opening bid was $199, but by the end of the auction, the painting had reportedly sold to Kim Smith, owner of the Perception Gallery in Grand Rapids, Michigan, for $1,025. Wow. Oh. Holy yeah. crap. So good on them. Um, so the buyer um, eventually contacted the artist and related the unusual story of its auction on eBay and their acquisition of the painting. He was quite surprised by all the stories and strange interpretations of the images in the painting. Um, according to the artist, the object presumed by the eBay sellers to be a gun is actually nothing more than the dry cell battery and entangled wires. Um, so recall recalled that both the owner of the gallery in which the painting was first displayed and the art critic, you know, that they died. Um, but that was, you know, what he said was basically the beginning of like why he thinks that people started getting so crazy about this. And that the picture, you know, that a lot of people were speculating about who the boy was and all this and like that he had gone through a terrible childhood and all this stuff. And he was like, that's not accurate at all. It was just based on a photograph of himself, you know, when he was five and that there was nothing, you know, crazy terrible that he was trying to depict with the picture of himself. Right. No, like there was no like emotional energy he was putting into the painting. Right. Like he wasn't terribly, you know, abused and now that's, it's carrying that in through the painting or anything like that. So, Now we go into our wonderful good friend, Zach Biggins. Nah. So, after, <laughs> <laughs> so yes. after, after hearing the story about the original painting, he contacted Sonam about commissioning a sequel, which Sonam accepted, mm-hmm. and he painted a sequel called Resistance at the Threshold in 2004, which depicts the same characters more than 40 years later and in the same style as the original. Have you seen this? No. Do you have it to no. text to us? I can hold on. I wow. Um, okay. So now that you see that, so 
And I sent you both. So there is two commissions. Another one made also for Baggins. Um, was made as a prequel to the original painting and soon created the hands invent him in 2017 depicting himself as a boy again, but now behind the original's painting door and holding a paintbrush amongst other visual elements. Those are two I sent you, I think. Yeah. Is, um, her is she like a robot doll now and her face is coming off, <clears throat> coming off in the first yeah, one? Yeah, it kind of looks like, yeah. So in that one, it's like, she's it's 40 years later, right? It seems like she's like kind of falling apart. Yeah, one of the, so, one of the disembodied hands is removing her face. Yeah, <sighs> it's so creepy. Ah. That's, I hate this even more. What wow. is with the wasps? <laughs> you don't. I don't know. It's so, I mean, out there. They don't, like I said, they don't get better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These things are not better. It's an, it didn't come to a happy ending. Let's just say that. Wow. So then in the second one, they're like, it, it's supposed to be before, I think. Right. But it seems like. is he, What is he pulling out of the water? Like a teddy bear or something? Yeah. And there's like vines everywhere, and yeah, it looks like they're they going look like, like a parallel a universe. Yeah. yeah, it's very, it's kind of like Salvador Dali ish in the background, kind of in that one little. Um, there's like a in the second one, there's like they're in like um, there's still that there's a door there, but now she's also got a head in her face. Like, is that a mask in her hand? Maybe I don't know. I, I can't explain these. I don't know. I, it's, it's all, you're like, stop <laughs> just, asking. I don't know. They're just creepy. I don't <laughs> it's absolutely. We will, yeah, Arch for sure, save these so we can put them on social media because this is mm-hmm. horrific. Yeah, you really have to see them to appreciate mm-hmm. I You think, really so. do. <laughs> so, um, wow. Yuck. Yeah. So now the, um, the pre- prequel painting ha- hangs in Zach Bagan's. Haunted Museum in Las Vegas, Nevada. Of course it does. (laughs) Right, exactly. So that's basically what we have on that. The the owner, as far as I know, the people in Michigan still have the painting and they haven't had anything weird happen. Um, You know, no one's died or anything. So, but the paintings are for sure creeps. And it seems like a lot of people have super strong reactions to them, as you can tell that we all are also creeped out by them. Uh, right, yeah. Like, the minute I saw it, I was like, I don't want this story. <laughs> Not it. Not it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Laura had to take the day off and was, like, out of town for the day. So Archie and her are like, let's pick these three. And I'm like, which do you want to do? And he's like, this one. I'm like, I want to do this one. Guess this leaves Laura with the shitty painting. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for that, by the way. Which that I forgot <laughs> to tell her about. I'm like, oh, by the way. Right. <laughs> yeah, she told me the day the was was recorded. Hey, by the way, uh, you need to do this. I was like, oh, all right, thanks for yeah, that. I'm like, also, uh, I think we're going to need to reschedule the recording because I haven't done my shit either. <laughs> we're on top of things as usual around here. Well-oiled machine. Exactly. <laughs> So, was so that, that's the story, yeah? Yay! Oh, good. Awesome. That was, that was really great. great. Yeah, good job, Laura. That was really great. Oh, um, and of course, Zach Bagans. I mean, you know. Oh, boy. Let no He's, supernatural stone go unturned. Mm, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> He's not in my story. Archie, is he in yours? You're next. No, no, he's not in mine, but I'm surprised. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Arch, you are up. What are you doing? Well, why today? am I up? Ha ha. I was, 
thinking we'd have to like rock paper scissors this one. Apparently, you're oh, the second. Oh, okay, word, okay. Then let's then let's do that. <laughs> yeah, we just basically said we didn't want to start. <laughs> let's do rock paper scissors. <laughs> okay. Okay. Do we want to do rock paper scissors or do we want to do rock paper scissors lizard Spock? Um, that, let's that's do too rock- much work right now. <laughs> I forget. I forget. I only know that Spock vaporizes lizard, and that's all I know. <laughs> okay, we'll just do the rock, paper, scissors. Okay, and also, it's whoever loses just goes. It's not best two out of three. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three, go. <laughs> <laughs> Liar. All right, I'll do it. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. Okay, go. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, you might hear the bird. He's not being policed very well right now. He's the new podcast mascot. Oh. All right. So, of course, since I'm apparently a history nerd, I chose the oldest one out of the three we decided to do with Thomas Busby's Stoop Chair. All of my information I got from Haunted Palace blog at wordpress.com. So if you visit the small jewel of a museum in Thirsk, you will see the rather strange sight of an oak chair hung from the ceiling in one of the display areas. Thirsk. The chair was, in, well, wait, Thirsk. Did you say what country? Thirsk. No, I did not say. It's England. Thirsk, West Virginia. No, England. Okay. <laughs> Thirsk in England. You will see the rather strange sight of an oak chair hung from the ceiling in one of the display areas. The chair was suspended at the explicit request of its owner to prevent anyone from ever sitting on it, including maintenance and cleaners. The museum has never broken its promise over the years, despite numerous requests and even the threat of legal action. This is one of the craziest stories, and I love it so much. I actually did know about this one, but not Laura's. I didn't know about this one, but I had so much fun reading this article. (laughs) Good, I'm so very glad. interesting. Yeah, I'm so glad, yeah. Local legend has it that the chair belonged to Thomas Busby, a thug, thief, and drunkard who lived in the North Yorkshire area of England in the latter part of the 1600s. I have dated one of his descendants, or maybe six or seven of his descendants. <laughs> <laughs> Busby married a woman named Elizabeth, the daughter of a small-time petty crook, Daniel Awetti, who lived near the village of Kirby Whisk. Or Whiskey, I don't know. I don't know how they do with their E's. Whisk sounds good. Okay. Awetti had purchased a farm after moving to the area from Leeds. His house, which he called Danati Hall, was ideal for Awedi, enabling him to continue with his illegal coining activities in relative seclusion. Busby, who was also the original owner of an inn near Sandhutton and just three miles from Danati Hall, became Awedi's partner in crime. The details of what happened on the fatal last day of Awedi's life are vague. Awedi and Busby may have argued earlier that day, but over what is not known. It could have been something to do with Elizabeth, the coining business, or almost anything else. Their relationship was known to be far from harmonious, with Busby often in a foul mood with Awedi for some reason or another. Well, I mean, there's no 
there's no honor among thieves, so. Right. <laughs> what is clear is that later that day, a drunken and volatile Busby returned to his inn only to find a wedding waiting for him, threatening to take Elizabeth home. Busby's mood only worsened when he saw Aweti sitting in his favorite chair. Whatever their second argument of the day was about, Busby forcibly removed him from the chair and threw him out of the inn. That sounds later like my that, dog. <laughs> later, that like night, later that night, Busby was still seething. He was angry. He grabbed a hammer, stormed over to Donati Hall, and bludgeoned Aweti to death. Busby then tried to hide his handiwork in the woods. Concern nothing over nothing like my dog. I'm sorry, Leia. <laughs> I apologize. Concern over Wetty's sudden disappearance led to a local search of the area. Um, once upon finding the body, Busby was arrested at the inn and charged with murder. In the summer of 1702, Busby was tried and sentenced to death for murder at the York Courthouse. His punishment was to be gibbeted or hung from a gibbet, which is basically a post, his body dipped in tar and his remains displayed on a stoop, which is also a post, attached to the gibbet, in full view of his inn. The inn was soon renamed the Busby Stoop Inn, a name it has retained until it closed in 2012. Oh, bummer. It's here where the story veers away from historical certainty and moves into the realms of local folklore. One version recounts how Busby was granted his last wish, which was to have a final drink at his own inn and sit in his favorite chair. Upon leaving the inn to make his final journey to the execution site, Busby cursed the chair, declaring that death would come shortly to anyone who sat in it. Another version tells how Busby drunkenly shouted out the curse whilst being taken to the gibbet to be hung. Whichever way you look at it, Busby was determined that even from beyond the grave, he would never allow anyone to enjoy sitting in his beloved chair ever again. So this is like every dad's dream with their lazy boy, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) It got to start start somewhere. (laughs) Right, right. Now we know where it all started. (laughs) So Was I he sh- sleeping in it, watching golf? What is happening? <laughs> <laughs> I need to know. <laughs> so, Archie, have you have you seen a picture of this chair? I I saw a picture of it where it's suspended from the ceiling. Yes, right. And we can safely say it's not a fucking lazy boy or anything it does close not to look it. Like a comfortable chair? No, it, no, it's just a fucking chair. But apparently, this guy had a massive heart on for the chair because. <laughs> Yeah, they actually, yeah. Anyway, it, yeah. it. No, Laura, it's not a lazy boy. <laughs> Busby's spirit was believed to have haunted his old pub as well as the area where he was gibbeted, but it's his precious chair, the focus of his curse, which became irrevocably linked to his revengeful spirit. Again, According to local legend, this seemingly innocuous piece of furniture has been responsible for more deaths than most serial killers. One estimate puts the number of its victims at over 60. The first reported death alleged to be associated with the death chair is that of a chimney sweep who, along with a friend, sat in the chair while having a drink one evening in 1894. 
the sweep never made it home that night. Being completely inebriated, he laid down on the road to sleep. The next morning, his body was found hanging from the post next to the gibbet. His death was ruled as a suicide, but in 1914, the friend with whom the chimney sweep had spent his last hours admitted his admitted on his deathbed to having robbed and murdered his friend. Oh my during, God. During the Second World War, the pub became a popular drinking spot with RCAF airmen. The airmen would goad each other to sit in the chair. Those that took up the challenge never returned from their missions. In 1968, a couple of years before Tony Earnshaw took over running of the pub, he overheard two airmen dare each other to sit in the chair. They both did. Returning to the airfield, their car left the road and crashed into a tree. They both died on the way to the hospital. Through the early 1970s, the chair seemed to claim a number of victims, including a cleaning lady who was diagnosed with a brain tumor after knocking into the chair, a number of cyclists and motorcyclists who suffered fatal road accidents, a hitchhiker who was run over after having spent two nights at the pub, and a local man who died of a heart attack shortly after sitting in the condemned chair. Did the, these road conditions? I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're you're going to a bar, you're having cocktails, and then you're getting on the road. Yeah, obviously it's, all... it's a problem. <laughs> like maybe they need a stoplight. I'm just saying. Once <laughs> train crossing something. Something. A group of builders having a drink at the pub cajoled the youngest of their group into sitting on the chair. Back at the work site, the man fell through the roof of the building and landed on the concrete ground below. This death proved to be the final straw for Earnshaw, and he banished the chair to the cellar. And then, <laughs> a delivery man from the brewery was in the cellar one day when he decided he was a little tired, so he sat down on the chair. He commented to Earnshaw that it was far too comfortable to be left down there. He was killed shortly afterwards when his van went off the road. Soon after, Earnshaw must have decided that the chair, despite being a profitable tourist attraction, was far too dangerous to keep any longer. So in 1978, he donated it to the Thirsk Museum. Well, and all the lawsuits were probably making it less profitable. <laughs> probably. Well, and killing all his clientele. I mean, that's a problem, right? Right. <laughs> that, that you, don't you don't want that reputation. Right. Well, and there are so many questions that could that have been left unanswered and probably unanswerable. Did Busby really commit murder over a chair? Could any person truly hold up such a deep affection for a carved piece of wood? Is Busby's reven revengeful and jealous spirit still attacking anyone who dares sit in his seat? Or was the murder over something far more important, something we will never, ever know about? Is the chair really haunted or was it a money-making gimmick? Is the chair just really an extremely unlucky piece of furniture? And if, if that is even really the same chair that Busby fought over Many people believe the deaths were just an unlucky coincidence. Another explanation could be simply that the majority of those brave enough to defy the curse were just risk takers, prepared to push their luck. 
And it is interesting how many of the deaths happen on roads and thousands of men of bomber missions never returned from flights or were they just unlucky? On one hand, it would be intriguing to test the chair to see if the legend still rings true. But on the other hand, sometimes it's better not to know. Excellent. Arch, I have to pose a question, guys. Would you sit in the chair? I would not sit in this fucking chair. I I would not sit in the chair. Mm -mm. (laughs) I would totally sit in the chair. God damn it. It doesn't look like a lazy boy, then I don't know why I'd want to. I mean, it really just kind of looks like a fucking wooden restaurant (laughs) chair. Yeah, really ugly chair. It's not great. (laughs) Good job, Arch. What did you think of it? It was great to read. I know. I love it. It's one of my favorites. It's a very interesting story. Right? my god anyway i believe in it the curse chair sometimes men are just fucking petty and he was already a thief like he you know obviously his morals were a tiny bit skewed right <laughs> and he was counterfeiting right too so yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. they were involved in some scandalous shit so yeah so the fact that he loved a chair doesn't surprise me in the least oh my god i mean there are people that marry bridges there are things there are people we don't know there are people that marry ghosts i, I mean yeah I read that whole thing with my my mic <laughs> way off to the side. You sounded good in my headphones. You did mine too. I guess my all right, Dell. Way to make a good computer laptop mic. <laughs> no, but is your mic plugged in or no? No. Well, all right then. On good on Dell. Okay, the next and final uh, haunted object that we're going to talk about today, guys, is mine. And I am going to tell everybody about the cursed Koh-i-Noor diamond. So I got mm. my, yeah, I got my information from Wikipedia, Steemit, Vasim Khan, and scmp.com. Those are all separate. They're not one giant run-on site. Um, <laughs> Which the minute I was like, this makes it sound like it's all one big long sight. Anyway, so have you guys heard of this diamond? I have no. not. It's one of the most famous diamonds in the world. Um, and it's also one of the most cursed diamonds in the world, similar to the Hope Diamond, which currently the Hope Diamond resides in the Smithsonian. Um but the Koh-i-Noor diamond, uh, like I said, is one of the most famous diamonds in the world. And it was first mentioned in 1306 when it was taken from a king of Malwa. Again, sorry, all of our, we, India is a new country for us. They're one of our top six countries. And we're probably about to lose them with this butchering of every <laughs> word I can possibly butcher. So. It was first mentioned in 1306 when it was taken from a king of Malwa whose family had held the diamond for centuries. The 186 carat gem, whose name means mountain of light in Persian, was described by one Mughal emperor as being, quote, worth half the daily expense of the whole world. Wow. It's a pricey, yeah, that's a pricey sparkler. Um, <laughs> it also, <laughs> I mean, you know, if, if right. you want it, it's, it's beautiful. It's huge. Uh, Kim Kardashian could not afford it. Uh, neither could Kanye. Uh, but it also carries with it a curse and a 750 year bloodstained history of murder, megalomania and treachery. 
I was like, tell me more. Um, <laughs> I'm, still, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. That just still doesn't mean it. It, Yeah, I <laughs> still doesn't mean I won't try to bid on it. Let me hear this treasure. <laughs> so, by the 16th century, the stone had fallen into the hands of the first Mughal emperor, Babur, whose son was the first to fall foul of the curse by being driven from his kingdom into exile. So, um, yeah, already things aren't going great. Um, the later Mughal ruler, Shan Jahan, Jahan. Oh, God, I'm just so sorry. Wow. Does he also have a clothing line? <laughs> Sean John. <laughs> also, right? Also known as P. Diddy. Uh, <laughs> so Kanye couldn't afford it, but you know. But P. Diddy could. Sean John got that shit. <laughs> yeah, Shah. 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 S H A H. You guys want to take a stab at that? S H A H? Shah? Thank you. Shah. Jahan. Sean John. Yes, go on. Sure. <laughs> Puffy Cone. He also has Ciroc. Go on. Right, yeah. <laughs> anyway, the, the gentleman who built the Taj Mahal uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> had the diamond placed into the feet into the famous peacock throne of the dynasty. So this throne was so ostentatious, I cannot even tell you. It was literally the biggest throne you ever saw. There's only drawings of it. It's housed somewhere, but I I couldn't find actual pictures of it. But it is literally like bottom to top, side to side, covered in jewels. And the Koh-i-Noor diamond was set into the head of a peacock design on the throne. So this particular, yeah, who the guy who designed the Taj Mahal had it. Popped yeah. it into his throne, um, but then he actually ended up spending his last days watching the throne's reflection through a barred window after being imprisoned by his own son, Arungzeb. Um, Arungzeb, if you're listening from the beyond, I'm super sorry I butchered your name. <laughs> so it was only after the Mughals had been deposed and the control of the diamond passed to the Persians that the Koh-i-Noor received its present day name. So this notorious diamond was originally discovered on the subcontinent of India, possibly in the famed mines of Golconda, probably unearthed from a dry riverbed, which I didn't know this, but India for centuries was actually the only source of diamonds in the world until the early 1700s, when diamonds were discovered in Brazil. Did you guys know that? Yeah. No, I did not. Archie, it was the only place. I did, but but of course I did. I mean, of course. (laughs) Our little little history buff. Yeah. So um, they were so popular that they soon became notable for their presence at court, a favorite of Maharajas and emperors alike, and they they were used as currency, a status symbol, um, of royalty and also the occasional beard ornament. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. I, I like it. Do you it like it? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I mean, 
Anyway, during the Mughal Empire, diamonds reached a zenith of appreciation. The Mughals ruled northern India for three centuries in the early 1500s. It was during this period that the Koh-i-Noor diamond first appears in the written record, when, in 1628, Emperor Shah Jahan... Again, so much. I know it's terrible. <laughs> I'm so sorry, India. We apologize, um, and we all apologize because they have to, you know, deal with my horrible butchering of all of our international countries' names. Oh, and we do such a good job all over the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> apparently, I can pronounce Japanese names no problem, but you know, English words and apparently Indian it's a huge issue. Anyway, mm-hmm. so Emperor Shaha. <laughs> Jahan, the visionary behind the Taj Mahal, commissioned the gem for his peacock throne. So the story has it that Nadir Shah, the conqueror of the Mughals, was preparing to return home after sacking Delhi in 1736 when he realized the diamond was missing from his collection. He was supposedly tipped off by a disenchanted member of the Mughal emperor's harem, that his enemy had kept the diamond hidden in his turban. So using an old war custom, Nadir proposed an exchange of turbans. As the gem fell to the ground from the, un- from the unfurling cloth and caught in the light, Nadir is said to have pro- proclaimed Koh-i-Noor, which means mountain of light. So since then, the diamond has been lusted over after by its owners who have been hypnotized by its value and status, as one of Nadir's courtiers put it, quote, if a strong man takes five stones and they throw one north, one south, one east, and one west, and the last straight up into the air, and then the space between filled with golden gems, that would equal the value of the Koh-i-Noor diamond. Wow. Mm-hmm. Right? I was like, that is loquacious and beautifully written. so after the assassination of nadir shah another victim of the curse the diamond passed through the hands of his successors each dethroned and ritually blinded don't love that (laughs) don't Mm. love that no yeah hard pass yeah hard pass on that um so within 40 years or no, sorry, hold on. I, I scrolled too fast. Um, the Kol Inur eventually returned to India in 1813, where it came into the position of the Sikh ruler Ranjit Singh. Mm-mm-mm. This this diamond, um, let me tell you. Let so me, did let... it say why they were ritually blinded? Was it just because that's just what they did? Or they I didn't want that's... them to be able to find the diamond or what? <laughs> I think what you do. <laughs> I yeah. I think like, de- I, you can't find me. <laughs> I can't see you. You can't see me. Uh, <laughs> I'm over here. <laughs> Worst game of fight and seek ever. Right? <laughs> Polo. <laughs> exactly. No, I think like, that was it's just like that monkey in the middle game that just started throwing the diamond like over their head. Oh God. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it would be, I wish it would be that charming, but um, I think every, like back then, like in that part of the world, 
a dethroned ruler was then ritually blinded. Whereas in um, Britain and in France, a dethroned ruler was beheaded. I would rather be beheaded than blinded. Yeah. Within 40 years, the stone had passed into the possession of Lord Dalhousie. Not Dalhousie, but (laughs) D-A-L-H-O-U. I was Dalhousie. That's that's unfortunate. It is. And I'm probably butchering this proper English word, but whatever. After a military campaign, every bit as ruthless and blood-soaked as those which had previously been fought for possession of the Koh-i-Noor. So the diamond then spent almost a century changing hands between various rulers, many of whom came to sticky ends, cementing cementing the reputation of the Koh-i-Noor as a cursed gem. A curse allegedly discovered in ancient Sanskrit documents, a dire warning that ill fortune would befall any man that held on to the diamond. Now, the Koh-i-Noor eventually returned to India in 1813, where it came into the possession of the Sikh ruler Ranjit, no, Ranjit Singh. By this time, the power dynamics on the subcontinent had changed. The British East India Company had expanded its influence across the Indian interior, plundering booty along the way. I don't know. I'm assuming that's goods and services. Um, Isn't that what booty always needs? Always, always. It's always. It's Webster says that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so following Ranjit Singh's death, the East India Company forced the 10-year-old regent, Duleep Singh, to sign a legal document as part of the British annexation of the Punjab, requiring this child who was, you know, heir to the throne, but he was 10. So they made him sign a legal document requiring him to give away not only all claim to sovereignty, but also the Koh-i-Noor diamond. Because remember, the diamond was a symbol of status and power and, you know, because it was so huge and beautiful and wonderful. And um, (laughs) so they strong-armed this kid into giving up his rightful claim to the Indian throne and this diamond that sort of like tied it all together. Uh, Members of the public uh, in Britain were given a chance to see the Koh-i-Noor diamond when the great exhibition was staged at Hyde Park in London in 1851. By the way, I've been to Hyde Park in London and I love it. Um, Nothing to do with the story, just any chance to throw in that I've been any to London. Any chance to throw it in her face. <laughs> oh, goddamn bird. It's so weird that this story led to you being able to discuss that. Hmm, so funny. I know that I just ended up with this one. It's weird. You're right. Oh, so funny. Almost like you picked <laughs> first. Go on. I, yeah, I, it's weird. Um, It represented the might of the British Empire and took pride of place in the eastern part of the central gallery. So, its mysterious past and advertised value in 1851, mind you, was one to two million pounds. That's a crap ton of money. I didn't do the conversion, but that's only because conversion calculators online only go back so far, and they didn't go back as far as 1851. So... 
Okay, so it's mysterious past and advertised value of one to two million pounds drew large crowds. At first, the stone was put inside a gilded birdcage, but after complaints about its dull appearance, the diamond was moved to a case with black velvet and gas lamps around it in the hope that it would make it sparkle better. Um, Despite this, the flawed and asymmetrical diamond still failed to please viewers, and they complained more. And I was like, okay, well... You don't and have a diamond. People complain about anything. <laughs> yeah. Wait till you see what this complaining right? did. God. Oh. Yeah. Did it kill somebody? Uh, a bunch. Please, somebody died for Yeah. It. The guard <laughs> was pissed and hucked it at a ton of people's heads and they all died. Yes. Uh, no, I'm kidding. That's missing from this story. That didn't oh. really happen. Yeah. So, uh, at the time, The diamond had been given to Queen Victoria. And so Queen Victoria, she was married to um, Prince Philip. No, not Prince Philip. Oh, wow. Oh. Prince Albert. Prince, hey, I'm in mourning. Cool. You only got like 10 more days to go. She's absolutely fired. Also, it's seven. We're in eight-day morning. Whatever. Also, my Native American ancestors are really upset with me right now. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, because of, of all of the complaints, so when the, the British took over and they, they made that 10-year-old child give up um, his sovereignty and the diamond and it became India for a long time was part of the British Commonwealth. And it, right. not a, I don't think a lot of people know that, but it was. So he decided to have the diamond cut down so that it was would be a much more dazzling stone. So he had it. It was, it was 186 carats in the beginning. It's now 105 carats. So even though it was so much more smaller he had it mounted in a honeysuckle brooch and a circle that was worn by queen victoria at this time it belonged to her personally and it was not yet part of the crown jewels which it is today after he trimmed it down and mounted it in originally a tiara um prince dilip who was the 10 year old kid that had given up his sovereignty and the diamond he had been made a ward of the british crown and was given an annual stipend of 50,000 pounds. This individual converted to Christianity and became a member of the racy circle of the young Edward VII, but he ended up dying in poverty in Paris in 1893. So having the diamond for a hot minute didn't do any favors for him either. No. Yeah. So the curse of the coroner diamond dates back to a Hindu text from the time of the first authenticated appearance of the diamond in 1306. The curse of the coroner diamond states, quote, he who owns this diamond will own the world, but will also know all its misfortunes. Only God or a woman can wear it with impunity. That's what I'm talking about. Right? I mean. Sounds like an Ariana Grande song. God is a woman. (laughs) Exactly. I was just thinking that. Unless she's not wrong. Right. That ponytail has all the secrets. All the secrets. There's a lot of secrets and it's a long ponytail. So 
Um, it was of incredible value and described by one of its owners, the Emperor Babul, as worth the value of one day's food for all the people in the world. So these people are describing the value of this gemstone as like half the world's income and all the value of food for the world. And if you threw stones everywhere, maybe in the middle, you would come up with a value of this. I mean, it was the most expensive gem in the world. The men who fought for it and the kingdoms and the great empires that were won and lost produced many stories of ill luck that plagued the owners and became part of the history of the Koenor diamond. Again, like there's the guy who, the first guy whose son de dethroned him. And then there's the guy that built the Taj Mahal who then had to watch his giant jewel encrusted peacock throne through bars because his son overthrew, overthrew him. I mean, Either the diamond is cursed or there just was no family loyalty back in the you know, oh. <clears throat> oh, early God, days. No. When it comes to money and value, there's no loyalty. Mm -mm. Then or now, nothing's changed. Right? So after the British East India Company took possession of the diamond aboard one of its ships, it wasn't too, too long before cholera, or no, not cholera, cholera, Cholera? <laughs> that I knew how to say. I knew how to say cholera. I'm like, Cloera. No, that's not right. They're in Don't oh, write it down. I fixed oh, it. I love in the time of callers. In the time of... It's your turn now. In the time of Cholera. I it hate was that a, time. I, it's terrible. We were that COVID, for sure. It was fucking Oh, God. Awful. I'm so glad I went second. <laughs> There were choleras everywhere. There were choleras as far as the eye could see. Nobody likes the butterfly we cholera. Cholera. We got it. We got it. God damn it. I'll leave it in because I embarrassed the two of you in the last episode. Cholera. It wasn't long before cholera took hold killing scores on board the vessel. Right after it arrived in Britain, Queen Victoria was attacked by a man with a cane. She received a nasty black eye as her carriage rode through the gates of the palace. Less than a month later, in July 1850, the country's prime minister, Robert Peel, died after he fell from his horse was and was trampled underfoot. All misfortunes attributed to the arrival of the diamond at the time. So it is widely believed that British kings possessed that possessed the Kohinoor, without they, and they didn't actually know how to use it properly. Therefore, it became a mixture, more of a curse than a blessing. So the history of this jewel speaks for itself. The British Empire, which had once expanded throughout the world, uh, is actually now a, is restricted to a fixed territory. They actually have lost countries within their Commonwealth. Um, so apparently this jewel is slow in that it belongs to Saturn, a slow moving planet, and hence affects the possessor cautiously rather than quickly. Normally it takes several years to start its effect between on average 10 and 25 years. It gives luck only to those who know its procedure to keep it purified. Otherwise, it forces the possessor to dispossess his or her territory and to disturb home peace. It's equally less lucky for queens. They're, 
they tend to um, dispossess many valuables and land to ward off its evil effects or face some tragedy. So the Maharaja Ranjit Singh, no, too many H's, sorry guys, uh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh got oh, this. Nice. Real- Thank you. I, it was a third attempt. Um, <laughs> in my head, I said it again, and then I, yeah, it's fine. Um, yeah, they don't need to know. We've already lost everybody mm-hmm. in listening anyway. Um, so the <laughs> this guy, Ranjit, we'll call him, <laughs> got this jewel in 1813, and it affected him after 25 years, and he suffered from a paralyzed attack in 1839 and died in the same year. In 1849, exactly after 10 years, British forces toppled his kingdom, which was controlled by members of his family. Again, further, all of Duleep Singh, who he was the little 10-year-old boy that the British forced to give up his sovereignty and the diamond, um, his children, he had eight (laughs) children, they all died childless. The effect of the Koh-i-Noor makes female females or queens more possessive, self-centered, and self-seeking, forcing them to lose some territory, reputation, and brings unhappiness at home. It breaks their home as far as, like, splits it within, like, divorce or unhappiness, um, and ultimately may end the monarchy as per some occult reading of this gem. Wow. hmm So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it, it it came into possession of the British in the 1800s. It was um, Queen Victoria's. She used to wear it as a brooch. She used to wear it as a bracelet. Um, the Britain the the Britain royal British royal family does tend to give some credence to this curse because they have only willed it to the wives of male heirs in line for the throne which is really <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> really fascinating. So. Wow. Yeah. Great Britain had to struggle hard to retain possession of the Falkland Islands, also known in Spanish as the Islas Malvinas. They also had to, that I can say. But, <laughs> but also I'm like, grew up, what? 200 miles from the Mexican border. If I can't say Spanish words, I'm a really shitty Arizona. Anyway, they also, <laughs> um, Britain also had to surrender the colony of Hong Kong to China in 1997. Did you guys know that? Yes. The transfer yep. took place, I believe on the millennia, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they face a tragedy of Princess Diana in the same year. So it was actually 1997 that they gave Hong Kong to China. And then the same year, Princess Diana died. Um, they suffered reputation in Iraq in 2003 by facing the wrath of their people. And then the new marriage of Prince Charles with Camilla in 2005 and the uncertainty of the future King of England, because of course, you know, he was divorced. The British church the Church of England doesn't recognize divorce. It was a whole big thing. Um, should I talk about Henry VIII? Do I go back all that way to explain how divorce is regarded in England or no? Are we? Are well, we I don't know. Do we have another hour? Hour, honey, <laughs> honey. 
he had six wives. I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> hence so the, no, no, we yeah, don't. So no, we don't have that time. <laughs> hence the Kohenor has turned <laughs> has turned out to be unlucky for the queens and the kings, as universally believed, unless they observe and maintain the purity of the diamond. What I found fascinating was that most historians have pointed out that after 155 years in the possession of the British monarchy, the present queen, Elizabeth II, can claim to be one of the longest standing owners of the Koh-i-Noor. It is kept in the Tower of London as part of the Crown Jewels collection, which is worth an estimated 13 billion pounds, approximately 17.8 billion US dollars. So, Oh, yeah. So, like, I wonder now, like, they don't wear them anymore, right? Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. unless, like, like, they only take the crown jewels off for, like, a coronation or something, right? So, right. Or I wonder if it has a difference that it's not like, like, Queen Victoria, who's wearing it about, right? Like, right. Well, also, also with how haunted the Tower of London is, it makes perfect sense to me that it's being held there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that nothing has happened since. It's being there. Exactly. Right. So Since the, the kind of like cancels each other out. Am I am I am I drunk? Yes, but you are in you you're you're along you're you're along the same vein, but here so here's where the diamond is at. So it was or, given to oh, probably probably not or, you're 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 in the same vein. And by vein I mean you're in an adjacent body. Of the vein. Um, <laughs> so the Koh-Anur diamond is currently in the crown of the queen mother. So the current queen's mother. It was um, taken out of like the jewelry that Queen Victoria wa- that wore and it was passed down to like her granddaughter and then Mary, Queen of Tech, who the Queen Mary ship is named after. It was put in her crown, and then it was put into Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother's crown, for her coronation. When, so, I'm the only one that, like, can follow all of this, because I study the British monarchy, (laughs) but um, the Queen Mother is the current queen. So, I understand. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. the, the Queen Mother is the current Queen Elizabeth's mother. It was put mm-hmm. into her crown for her coronation when her husband acceded to the throne after his brother abdicated. That's kind of that jumbled history. The last time it was seen in public was at the Queen Mother's funeral in 2002 on her coffin. So it is still in her crown. Um, it was last seen in public during her um, funeral procession and, um, her crown was on her coffin and is huh sorry arch what was your question well i i just it didn't occur to me until now that the jewels were taken from one crown put in another record from another and put around yeah it yeah it's it's pretty cool so it has remained in the queen mother's crown ever crown ever since 1937 um, Record. Recording. Yes, we're recording. No, there's no button. There's yeah, I don't see the record icon. Well, I do, so I guess that's okay. All right. I guess then. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We'll go with that. 
Yeah, we're recording. Um, up. All right, it just popped up. Oh, there it is. Yeah, it just popped up for me too. My God, I'm, all, I'm not talking for free, bitch. Let's do this. <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't make me repeat shit. It's literally all these do motherfuckers do. Do not make do. me repeat myself. Is fucking talk for free. So anyway, yes. So the the diamond is currently kept in the Tower of London as part of the crown jewels collection, which I have seen and is lovely and amazing. I don't have pictures because my mother wouldn't let me take them because it is not allowed. Um, (laughs) Good job, Nancy. Yeah. Which is why you were not contacted by the state department upon my arrest, Archie. Cause I, I as my, as my person all the time when you're not supposed to. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. I know. I know. Um, and they don't even like, so we were in like another part of tower of London where there were other crown jewels kept. And this guy was taking pictures with his cell phone and the girl who like, who was like monitoring all that. She was like, sir, you can't take pictures, but she didn't say it in a Valley girl, American accent. Um, and, Surprisingly, um, weird in London. Go on. Weird. I know that's weird. Um, she oh, was like, God. so you can't take pictures, but she didn't like shuttle him out or whatever. And I thought, how much trouble would I get in if I actually did do this stuff? But my mother well, was so horrified that she was like, no, don't even. I have seen it. Uh, I didn't know I was looking at it when I saw it. Uh, but now next time I won't know. Uh, Crown Jewels collection is worth an estimated 13 billion pounds today, approximately 17.8 billion in US dollars. Wow. Yeah, so I have some fun facts about this one because, you know, I love a good fun fact. Um, And it's one of those things that is kind of along the lines of the Elgin Marbles. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but um, the British Museum has a bunch of um, uh, original, authentic um, marbles of the Acropolis in um, Greece. In, in Greece that, wow. yeah, that they have, that Greece has been demanding that, that Britain give back. Um, this diamond is another thing that, uh, that India is actually demanding that Britain return. So the government of India, believing the gem is rightfully theirs, first demanded the return of the Koh-Anur diamond as soon as independence was granted in 1947. So remember I had said that it was part of the Commonwealth, but they have since lost it. Um, a second request followed in 1953, the year of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Each time the British government rejected the claims, saying that ownership was non-negotiable. In the year 2000, several members of the Indian Parliament signed a letter calling for the diamond to be given back to India, claiming it was taken illegally. British officials said that a variety of claims meant it was impossible to establish the diamond's original owner and that it had been part of Britain's heritage for more than 150 years, which it had been. Also, in July of 2010, which I'm reading all this and I'm like, holy crap, they're still battling over this diamond. (laughs) In July of 2010, while visiting India, David Cameron, the prime minister of the United Kingdom at the time, said of returning the diamond, quote, if you say yes to one, you you suddenly find the British Museum would be empty. I am afraid to say it is going to have to stay put. On a subsequent visit to India in February 2013, he said, quote, they are not having that back. So 
In April 2016, the Indian Culture Ministry stated that it would make, quote, all possible efforts to arrange the return of the Kohanur to India. It was despite the Indian government earlier conceding that the diamond was a gift. The Solicitor General of India had made the announcement before the Supreme Court of India due to public interest litigation. Excuse me by a campaign group. He said, quote, it was given voluntarily by Ranjit Singh to the British as compensation for help with the Sikh wars. The Kohanur is not a stolen object. As of the airing of this podcast, the British royal family continued to maintain being the rightful owners of the diamond. It will stay within the crown of the Queen Mother, That may change once um, Queen Elizabeth, God forbid, die anytime soon. But once she does and Prince Charles accedes to the throne, that may change because it is willed through um, the British royal family. It is willed to the wife of the direct heir to the throne. So technically, Camilla is the next one to get it. And after she... After her, then it will be Kate Middleton. Uh, and then after that, it will be whoever Prince George marries. So it's all just in the direct line to the, to the direct heirs to the throne, their wives. Um, so I guess we'll see. I guess we'll find out. Um, yeah. I have yeah. so many thoughts on that. but Yeah, I do too. I really do too. Because, mm-hmm. well, yeah. because the way that it, I mean, even Queen Victoria wasn't comfortable with the way Britain had acquired the diamond um she didn't like wearing it um for a number of reasons but mainly because she she had reservations about how the diamond was acquired but um but even as david cameron said if they had not taken everything from everybody that they had colonized they wouldn't have anything in the british museum so Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) me raping and pillaging other people's cultures and taking yes for your own yes um and egypt has actually been fairly successful at getting a lot of their a lot of their stuff back right yeah. and and because it was so i mean clearly just clearly um <laughs> and with the new um museum opening and I th- did it just yes or it's on just the Acropolis. yeah it's just about to the new egyptian museum yeah in cairo mm-hmm. yeah yep. um mm-hmm. god i think i mean it's obviously i've only seen kind of the beginning of what it's going to look like and it's going what to it be does look like. absolutely it's, uh, amazing mm-hmm. yeah so they were lucky that they got so much of their property back and there's still so much everywhere oh, i mean yeah, sure. it was just taken and mm-hmm. distributed so yeah. it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with that because it is going to be really interesting because at the time that that britain acquired all of that stuff especially like the elgin marbles it was one of those like written treaty not really necessarily elgin marbles but like it was a treaty kind of like a okay here you can take these to study them and what have you and then the person that said you know made that arrangement died prematurely or what have you um and then it was like well you know the person i made this arrangement with is dead now so well, and I, just think I it's guess so we'll much. just kind of hang on to these for now. And I will even just say, they belong to Egypt. They they belong, or the, the, the Elgin marbles belong to Greece. Mm-hmm. They belong to the Acropolis. They are the actual like bas reliefs in in the Parthenon. Like, uh, uh, yeah. 
Well, I mean, and what England did to India, I mean, out of mm-hmm. how many people they killed, how insufferable yeah. they made life and how much they suppressed and robbed that country, the least that they could do is give that demon back. That's my personal opinion. And I'll just stop there. <laughs> I, I completely history and it's not awesome. <laughs> I completely agree. But at the same time, like that's what conquering nations do. Yeah, exactly. But and the United States wouldn't be here if, if, if it weren't for right. that very same mentality. So no, exactly. And we, and we perpetuate it as well. So absolutely. Know, yeah. I agree. The, the victors write the history. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's a fascinating story. So what do you guys think? Dot cursed or just, you know, you know, uh, you know, the 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 bigger you are, the harder you fall situation. I mean, there's so this, much this, history. This is a difficult one. Yeah, there's so much history in, in India between it's such a diverse country and there's so many different um Types of people and different empires that were fighting forever there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that it was going to get moved around and fought over and everything else. Um, so it, of course, it's. I mean, with that long of a history, it's going to have a c- crazy amount of bloodshed around something that valuable. You know, the way that they talked about it. <laughs> God, you know what I mean? Like God, it's crazy. I have never heard like, anything who described want that? exactly. I've never heard anything described so like it's almost they described it right up to the point of being priceless. Like they actually tried to put value on this diamond mm-hmm. without like they came right up to priceless. And but they were, I don't know. It was just the Hope Diamond is another one that I was like, do I want to do Kohanur or do I want to do the Hope Diamond? Or <laughs> I mean, obviously, I love the British royal family, the British monarchy. Like I said, I study it. Um and so I and I've actually well, seen this diamond without even knowing it was this diamond. Right. We and, were in London five years ago. So also the Hope Diamond is a cursed object. Mm-hmm. It is, so. and it's safely. I've, did you read the article? Have you? It's safely ensconced in the Smithsonian, which I gotta see. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we definitely need to make mm-hmm. a visit to the Smithsonian. We do, and I was actually kind of wondering if maybe you wouldn't want to like go up to DC with me for a night, Arch, while you're here. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Just to, like you know, I gotta see Judy Garland's movie slippers. I'm all whatever, bitches. But anyway, so what do you guys? So Laura, what do you think? Cursed or just? I think it's hard to say. It, like I said, because of all the history involved and how bloody it was, it's really. I mean, there's so much stuff that happened, and then after Queen Victoria, you know, you had World War One, mm-hmm. and then World War Two, and of course, like. England lost so much, except for, you know, the Falkland Islands, their strategic sheep herding islands Mm -hmm. that they needed to hold on to. But, um, you know, they had to give Hong Kong back. Uh, But I think it's, I don't know that I believe it's cursed. I I can totally see that there was. I I think. Yeah, something that valuable that people are going to fight over. I think that that's just going to happen. Yeah. You know, you can't be holding onto something like that with all the wars and all the fighting that was happening. And of course people are going to come for it. You know, it's, it's renowned. Yeah. It's, you know, it's this beacon of like, mm-hmm. Hey, come take this. Cause that means Since, that you're like the most important powerful person. If you have this, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's especially since the 1300s and like even the God Krishna was said to have really valued it. So Arjun, what do you think? 
I think it's a lot of coincidences. Yeah. For for all three of our stories, but I I mean there's no there's no way to say. There isn't. I mean, there's no way to I say. I mean, I'll there's, totally there's... take it and hold on to it if anybody needs me to. <laughs> and just like see how it goes and I'll report back. Except that you only God or a woman can wear it with impunity, so you would absolutely be fine. I know exactly. Like this is give it to Zane. (laughs) Give it to Zane, and we'll really see if this is. He's just gonna lose it under his bed with all of his seven remotes of (laughs) independence. Like there's like a Lego stash under there. It's just gonna be like (laughs) it'll be so safe, so safe. There you go. With all, all right. his lost Legos, like in a pile somewhere under his bed. Laura, oh Laura will oh. be the escrow for the Kohinoor diamond. It's while- basically the Tower of London for Legos. <laughs> <laughs> well, Britain and India hash it out. All right. So um, oh. <laughs> we're going to go around based on who uh, started their stories. Laura, between your story, Archie's story, and mine, whose do you believe is the haunted object of the group? Um, I would probably have to say mine. Really? Maybe. I don't know. It seems like more stuff like actually kind of befell people that actually had something to do with it. It like is the chair not- thing, like the chair mm. thing. I don't know. It's just I don't know. All of it seems kind of really yours is really the chair horrible. was really like, and mostly it's because mine is so awful, rose to look at, like and awful. The yeah. chair not so bad, mm-hmm. and um, the diamond is beautiful. So like, but my painting actually like kind of hurts your insides. I'm really like, a little bit. Did like you- like yeah, no matter what, bad. you're gonna be like upset about it. So. <laughs> Like, even if it doesn't curse you, you're going to be like, ew, no. Like, (laughs) I don't want that in my house. Out of all of them, I think (laughs) mine is the one that you don't want in your house. No, 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 no. Um, Unless you put the painting behind the chair and place the diamond on the seat of the chair, and then I think they're all appeased. (laughs) Right? Oh, God. That that would sure as hell be a trifecta, wouldn't Wouldn't it? it? Arch, what do you think of our stories? Who's had who had the most haunted object? Oh God, definitely Laura. Really? With the painting? Oh yeah. It's because everybody gets upset when they look at it. Everybody <laughs> gets upset when they look, look at, at it. it. Everybody says that the, the the little doll girl bullies the boy and forces him out of the painting. Hey, don't bring our childhood <laughs> friendship into this. I was like, he <laughs> might have. Some pre-misgivings about that. Oh, my God. Maybe a little bit of, like, he's having some post-trauma work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's like, I don't know, she has brown hair. She kind of reminds me of somebody. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. I was just there hanging out. My vote is totally for the painting. My vote is for your chair. Really? Yes, I I genuinely... Yeah, I genuinely think that that is a cursed chair just because he just seemed like a petty fellow that would spend his afterlife, (laughs) you know. I just, I buy it. I love it. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's true. I think we've all known a man who is super petty. Um, I also know that if I sat my dad's lazy boy, there was hell to pay. Uh (laughs) And if you change the channel kids if you change the channel oh. when your dad falls asleep watching golf he'll magically oh, yeah. wake up mm-hmm. <laughs> he could be asleep for hours give me a sec you change it off the golf channel 
He's wide awake. <laughs> okay, so Laura votes for uh, Archie. No, Laura no, votes for, for her own. Archie votes for Laura's, and I vote for Archie's. No, nobody, nobody oh. voted for my diamond. Um, but it's kind of hard to vote for my diamond just because, like, fame and money make you do the wacky. So, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of like, who wouldn't want that? You know what I mean? Like, so whoever yeah. kind of followed it might have kind of just come because it was yeah, kind of like the most fucking valuable thing on the earth. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you might be desperate enough to fucking hang on to it. I mean, you know, you might want it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, what the hands resist him. Is that the name of the painting? Mm-hmm. The hands resisting. Yeah. yeah. The hands resist him. Uh, Thomas Busby's chair and the co diamond guys. Um, so drop us a line. Let us know what you think, which object do you think is the most haunted? And, uh, to that end, that's it. That's it for us. We are coming back next week with a brand new episode and um, I do just want to say we're recording this on Saturday night, and um, I did chose the I did cho- chose I did chose the diamond. No, I did mm-hmm. choose the diamond uh, because it is currently in the possession of the British royal family, and all of our dedicated listeners and my lovely hosts know how much I love the British monarchy, and I'm fascinated by it. So I do want to say that uh, my mom and I did shed uh, more than a few tears at the news that Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, had passed away at the age of 99, um, even though, you know what, he deserved it. He <laughs> he lived 99 years, and it was time to... Uh, now his watch has ended, as I like to say. So um, we certainly send a lot of love to the British royal family. We cover a lot of your... Um, infamous locations here on this on this podcast and i have <laughs> talked an endless blue streak about um your history so we wanted to just say rest in love prince philip and uh that's all i have so if you guys want to sign it off while i go cry oh <laughs> <laughs> talk about yourselves i'm the clunt oh god Oh, we lost we lost DMX too. Yep. We did lose DMX, who was um probably I don't I think he got more attention for his shenanigans and, and unfortunate drug use than he actually did his musical career because he was actually a little bit more um successful in in certain ways than some of the most famous rappers, including Jay-Z, Kanye, uh, DMX, man, I'll tell you what. He his first five singles or his first five albums reached um, either with the Rough Riders. I mean, he was they were huge. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, even my son knows well, probably because I say it to him all the time. Y'all gonna make my lose my mind up in here, up in here. <laughs> he may have heard me sing it to him more than once, like a lullaby. <laughs> but yeah, he may think it. Maybe a part of his childhood, DMX. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we did lose DMX as well. Um, uh, and a lot of moms are, you know, singing that song. <laughs> Probably not his target audience when he wrote Every it. Every but... day. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Every mom is like, 
I dedicate this to my children. Mm-hmm. A million percent. <laughs> Although he had like a ton of kids. He probably wrote that for his kids too, to be honest. 15. Like, I mean, I mean, no wonder so many parents related to that song. He had 15 wow. kids. It was probably to his children as well. <laughs> but he was only 52 years old. Yeah, he was only 52 years old. He was really old, young, so yeah. He was really young. Tragic. Yeah. And sorry for his family. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so DMX, yes, uh, this one, it goes out to you too, as we are a cheap radio station, internet radio station. (laughs) Um, what, you know, I don't know, as a lot of people know, I know that, uh, Phoenicians do, but DMX used to live in Arizona. Yes, he did. um, Got a lot of, uh, his, uh, Skirmishes with the law in Arizona. <laughs> I was like, yes, he spent a lot of time in Sin City, I believe. He really did. Um, and <laughs> he got to know our fine desert. <laughs> a million percent. You weren't a, a kid of uh, the or late 90s, early 2000s if you didn't go to a club and then, oh my God, is that DMX? Yes. Ah, yeah. So I have seen, yeah, I have seen DMX at a couple of Scott. Him and Charles Barkley were always at the same club. <sighs> always at the same clubs. So oh, God, I missed out on that. You really did. Oh, no. You missed out on some times here in, uh, or oh. there rather. Oh, oh, I don't like being uh, able to say that. Oh, hugs. There in Arizona. So, um, so yeah, that is the end of our episode on a really super somber, sad, sucky note. Uh, as how always, we like to take it out. I mean, how we <laughs> like to end it. We don't end it <laughs> shit on a high note. Um, but as always, guys, stay safe out there because you never know who or what is watching <laughs> or <Yeah>. listening. <laughs> is it watching? Is it listening? I don't know. Archie never says that line, so he's like, I don't know what that last line is. He was oh taking a drink. I was trying to help him out. <laughs> you stole my line. You were taking a drink. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And professional as always. There we go. There we go. And this feels like a good place to end the episode. (laughs) Exactly. Good night, guys. We love you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.